The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. You know, I, uh, I don't know about you guys, you're probably not the same, but I, I hate renovation projects. I, uh, I grew up, my, uh, my dad is a, uh, well, was a construction worker, and so he, he built high-rises, and uh, so there was always, always some kind of project going on around the house. There was always some, they're tearing a wall down, or they're knocking a wall, you know, knocking the exterior wall out, and going to extend the living room out to the porch, or they're going to do something, and, and, and I hated it, because every single project, you have to take one step back to go two steps forward. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like you're going to have, like, you're going to have weeks and weeks and weeks of dust everywhere and debris everywhere. And you're not going to be able to use your kitchen table. You can't cook in the kitchen because you're moving all the cabinets out. There's always, you always have to take one step back in order to take two steps forward. And I hated that as a kid. I absolutely hated renovation projects because by nature I'm short-sighted. And I don't want like five minutes of discomfort in order for a, a better results down the road. You know what I'm saying? Like, you guys ever like feel that? Like maybe it's not renovations. Maybe it has to do with, you know, your diet or exercise. Like, you know, like if I changed my diet or if I started exercising or if I stopped spending less, if I converted to a budget, you know that that on the down the road, it's going to be for your benefit. But this, this in-between time, this short time is so it stinks so bad. It just really, really stinks so much that you don't want to go through that in order to get to the other side. Maybe I'm the only one in the room that's like this, but you know that's kind of my, my experience. I, I'm short-sighted. I don't want temporary discomfort for the long-term benefits. We're, but we're all like that in some way. It's sort of like uh, my, my son, Landon. You guys know him. Uh, he's three years old. And so he knows that Megan and I love him and want our best for him. I think he, in his three-year-old way, would articulate that to you. But at any given time, when we tell him to stop doing this and do this, or we don't want him to do this, we want to do this instead, or, or hey, go here, go there, come here, go there. At any given point, whenever that intersects, when that goes against like what he wants. It's really nice when you say, hey, come snuggle with me because he loves to snuggle. He calls him nuggle. Uh, he, loves, he likes to nuggle and watch TV. That, that's awesome. <laughs> so you, you get there together, you got the blanket, he's got the blanket, and you get there to nuggle, and that's great. So you're going the same way. But when it's like, let's stop watching TV and let's go to bed, all of a sudden, <laughs> there's a crash. Because even though he knows in his three-year-old way that I want my best, the best for him, it doesn't feel like that to him that's at that moment because the two wills have intersected. Uh, and we're all like that with Jesus. We're really happy to go along with what he says to do when we're going in the same direction. But whenever his will and my will clash, there's a crash. When his will goes this way and my will goes this way and that it intersects right here in this clash, that's where there is a crash, and it can, I mean, it can get ugly at that point. And we're going to read an account this morning in Mark, where we are, by the way, Mark chapter 4, of a time where this happened in a very dramatic way with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus has started his ministry. We've been going the first three, three weeks, and we see how he just kind of, whenever he comes on the scene, he's 30 years old when he comes on, so he's sort of a late bloomer. 
uh, kind of, not, I mean, I was a late bloomer. I, I was, uh, when I graduated from high school, I actually, and even when I married Megan, I, I weighed 147 pounds. I was super skinny, even nerdier than I am today. Very, very awkward around people. I wouldn't look people in the eye when I had a conversation. I had this one girl that thought I was looking at this general vicinity of her body all the time. She was a friend of mine. But it was because I, I couldn't look people in the eye, so I picked a spot to look at. It wasn't down here. It was a, it was a necklace. And so I was looking at her necklace, but she thought my, my eyes were straying down. And so I was a late bloomer. Jesus is out in the middle of nowhere in Galilee. He's a, he's a carpenter. He wasn't well known. It wasn't like a, he had a, he didn't have an international construction business. He was just a local carpenter building, I don't know, chairs and doors, helping people their house, odd jobs here and there. And, and in fact, it wasn't even in a nice area. He wasn't in like the New York or London or even Columbia or Charleston of Israel. He was in the Ori County of Israel. He was back in the backwoods in Galilee, which is where, where you know, they said, they said did nothing good comes out of Galilee. Nothing, nothing, nothing good comes out of Nazareth just because it's sort of like, hey, nothing, you know, people in Charleston and Columbia, they're like, nothing good comes out of Ori County, and that's probably partially right. And so Jesus is out in obscurity. He's serving. All of a sudden, God calls him at the appointed time to ministry. He gets baptized. He enters public ministry, and he enters it with a bang. Because Jesus came on a mission of compassion. And so whenever he comes on a mission of compassion, as he meets people who are hurting, people who are sick, people who are oppressed, people, he comes across them and he can't just walk past them. We talked about that last week, the guy with the withered hand. He didn't just walk past them or stare at them awkwardly or act like he didn't see that the guy had a withered hand. His heart moved with compassion to the man and he met him where he was. And he served him, he loved him, he healed him. And because of that, he starts to get an incredible reputation. Tons and tons of people, crowds of people are coming out to follow him. In the middle of Ori County, Galilee, Israel, they are following him all around. We talked about how there was three groups last week. There was one group of people called the Pharisees, and they watched from afar. They did, he was threatening their whole setup because we talked about how both irreligion and religion can keep you far away from the heart of God. And he was threatening their whole setup of, of religion as they knew it. And so they watched from afar and they, they tried to figure out how to debunk it, how to, how to make it take a hard left turn. And then there are another group of people, the largest group of people, that were following him all around the Sea of Galilee, all around the countryside. They were following him. Why? Because he was healing people. So if you, I mean, imagine we don't have modern doctors and amazing pharmacists like Dale back, back then. You, there's no, like, you can't go and dispense some amazing drug that makes you feel better tomorrow. Like, if you're sick, you're just sick, and they had very limited resources. And then they're in a poor area on top of that. So what little bit of medical knowledge was not hanging around in Nazareth and Bethlehem and all the area of Galilee. And so somebody comes along the, on the scene who is healing people and touching them where they are. It causes an amazing stir. So those crowds are following him all over the place. But why? Understandably, because what they could get out of it. And we talk about how there was another group of people, a smaller group of people, who he says who were his disciples. And these were a group of people who saw in Jesus not just what they could get out of him, but they saw a God that was worth worshiping. They didn't see just a man. They saw the Messiah who had come from God to save them. And so they were following him. Later on down the road, there's a, 
there's a Jesus gives a weird teaching that really freaks everybody out because he's talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Everybody, he clears out the crowd. The church all leaves, and it's just like the team, the core team, sitting there. And he says, are you going to leave too? And, G- and Peter says, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. They saw something different. So we saw how he called up to himself the disciples, and then he selected out of those disciples 12 who he called apostles. And who, so, the, so we saw how there was a group of people who didn't just like believe in Jesus from afar, but then they entered into an intentional discipleship relationship with Jesus. And that's where we ended last week with the question of who are you following and where is that taking you? And the question about that is, is... Are you just a believer who's kind of sitting around on the outskirts? Or are you a disciple who is availing themselves of every opportunity, all your energy and all your time, in order to be a disciple and to follow Jesus Christ? Are you on the outskirts? Are you intentionally following him? And we saw how those who intentionally followed him, he called them to be apostles, and then he sent them out on mission. He told them he was going to send them out on mission. So it's not too far after that. Uh, he, it, the crowds are all around, so Jesus, ingeniously, really, he gets out in a boat, because uh, when you look around your team, he didn't have like the, the Cracker Jack team that you would, like, you would draft. They weren't first-round draft picks in his team. So a lot, uh, no offense to anybody in this room, but a lot of like Docs of Church. No first-round draft picks hanging around here, but people who are willing to follow him and be disciples. But they did have a skill. They were fishermen. And so the crowd is pressing around him, just pushing, pushing in. You've been in a big, giant crowd. Like, my wife has a little bit of crowd phobia. Like, she gets in a crowd maybe because she's shorter than everybody else. And I don't mean to pick that out. You guys know that. You've seen her. And maybe because she's shorter than somebody else or, or whatever reason. But the crowds are pushing around, and you get, you get uncomfortable in the crowd. You know, it's just like jostling. You lose, you lose control because there's such a mass of people around you. And so Jesus called for his fishermen disciples to take him out in a boat. And there's a section of the Sea of Galilee in the southern end where there's sort of a natural amphitheater built. It's not built, it's a natural amphitheater that's there. Meg and I have been to Red Rock in outside Denver. Anybody else been to Red Rock? It's an acoustically perfect natural amphitheater, just the way they found it. They put it in seats and everything, but it's acoustically perfect. And so that's sort of a similar situation he could get out in the boat so you don't have people all around you. You have the water sitting in front of you and then the people. And they, they've done tests there where somebody could very easily speak to thousands of people from sitting on a boat in the middle of the water because of the natural amphitheater. And you have space for your voice and the sound waves to travel along and bounce off the water. And so he's teaching a whole crowd. He teaches in parables. Uh, if you were here in the... Late summer, early fall, we went over a couple of these parables that are the first part of this chapter. It has to do with sowing and uh, kind of agricultural metaphors. And then it gets to the end. He's preached, they had church, things went great. Uh, interesting enough, most of the people didn't understand what he was saying. It says that, uh, and, uh, that they didn't really understand what he was talking about, but uh, they listened. Probably a lot like you guys at church a lot of times, you don't know what they're talking about, but you leave and... Maybe you feel better or maybe something happened. I don't know. And then verse 35, it says that on, on that day, when evening had come, so they had a full day of meetings. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're Pentecostal. They had a full day of meetings. And then it said, uh, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across 
to the other side. We don't really know why he wanted to do that. I think he had a purpose in mind. Wherever he was going, he had a greater purpose, the reason he wanted to take them across the lake or have them take him. In verse 36, And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. So they're saying that, that they didn't take him back to shore. He, just, he was on the boat. He said, let's get out of here. And they, he said, bye crowd. See you guys later. You guys go eat at, you know, wherever, you know, Chipotle or wherever you guys eat after church. And I'm, I'm headed out of here. And so he, he heads out. And this is an interesting part where Mark, this, this account is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Mark gives the most detailed accounts. Little details here in this section that you wouldn't normally put in an account like this. But because it was Peter who had been there, who told his story to Mark, it's full of little details that nobody would know unless they had been there. It's just a nice little touch. Let's see that. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. That's another little detail. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. So the Sea of Galilee was in itself about, I think, uh, 700, make sure I get my number right, because sometimes I make stuff up, not on purpose, but it's, like, I, I say stuff from memory, and I, it ends up being wrong. That's how I got Shawshank Redemption and all that stuff wrong. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And then just 30, there's, there's mountainous high ground surrounding it. And just 30 miles to the north, the largest mountain in the area is uh, Mount Hermon. And it's 9,200 feet high. So you have 10,000 feet difference in elevation between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon, which is 30 miles to the north. Is that right to the north? Yeah. Make sure I'm getting all my stuff right. You guys have been calling me out on it, rightfully so. 700 feet, 10,000 feet. So when you have that, as anybody has been around mountains before, you have as the day cools or the day heats, air starts rising, air starts falling, and like stuff can happen in, a, in an instant. Storms hit up, winds start to blow, like you don't even see it coming. It just, it just comes right on you real fast. And that's what had happened here. In fact, even today, fishermen around the Sea of Galilee are still called the... Uh, early evening storms, they call them sharkias, which is like their word for shark, because it comes and it bites you fast and it bites you hard. And that's what happened to these guys. They're out the, on the sea who's, by the way, these were experienced fishermen. These weren't just like me getting out trying to rent a boat, trying to take people around. Like, these are experienced fishermen who know what's going on on the sea. This windstorm, this is actually the same word for a hurricane. In, in, the, in the Greek, it starts to kick up and it gets crazy out on the water. I, I have, uh, Megan and I were uh, are we on our honeymoon and uh, we got a really, 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 because our whole wedding was cheap, we had a really, really cheap uh, honeymoon trip and, uh, and that was, the heart of it was a cruise. And the cruise went out of uh, Miami and went down, we're supposed to go down to uh, Key West and then over to uh, Cozumel, Mexico. And as we're on the boat, they, they tell us, well, we're not going to stop at Key West because there's a hurricane. And we're just on the edges of it, um, but, but we're just going to circumvent that hole. We're going to have more time in Mexico, so don't worry. Well, I, I, 
I thought it was no big deal. I'm, you know, I just got married. I'm what little bit of macho I have. I'm trying to show it. Uh, well, that's the first morning, the first evening that we're out on. I don't remember which. We're out at sea. Uh, we had to go to like they have an orientation show, and uh, as we're leaving that, the boat's rocking. Now it was, it wasn't even rocking a lot, but it was rocking. You could feel it rocking like this. And we're we got walked through the duty free shop, and Megan's like looking at all the cheap cologne and, and perfume and all this stuff, and I'm rocking like this, and the more we rock, the worse I feel, <laughs> and the worse I feel, the worse I feel, and it just starts to build in upon itself, and I try to do mind over matter, it's not really bothering me, it's a big shit, nothing's going to happen, but it's just rocking like this, and uh, I was down for the count for <laughs> quite a while, an inauspicious start to our honeymoon, I can assure you, um, and that was nothing compared to what these guys were experiencing out on the sea. Uh, has anybody here, maybe you're a fisherman or you're a boater, anybody here been in a real storm in a boat? Anybody? Let me see. It's a little scary, huh? That, that's why when in the ancient times, the sea was very mystical, scary thing. The, the, to, to, a lot of, to a lot of fishermen, a lot of sailors, they thought the sea was... Uh, Maybe not even only controllable by God Himself. It was kind of almost like it was. There was. Yeah, that's why you have the stories of mermaids and all kinds of crazy things going on. The sea monsters, because it was it was an area that was out of control. That maybe even God, depending on what God you worship and what God you serve, maybe maybe He was in control, but nothing else. So these are out in the sea. This gale hits of this hurricane-force winds. It's, it's rocking the boat. And these experienced fishermen, we're going to see how bad it was. Look at what it says uh, uh, in verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep. That's he. That's Jesus asleep on the cushion. Again, a little detail that we really need to know except Peter happened to be there. And they, as his disciples, woke him. Remember, these are experienced fishermen. And they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, this is it's interesting. So, these experienced fishermen are already decided we're going to die. Like, 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 have you ever been, a, you ever been in a situation like where somewhere in the middle of it, you're like, okay, I'm getting ready to die. And, and like, like, you just accept it. Like, that, this is the, like maybe you're in a bad car wreck, or for me, it would be heights. You stick me up above. I'll say 10 feet, but it might be more like five, six feet off the ground. And I'm like, I, I freeze, I'm done, I'm just going, it, it, I, I'm paralyzed, I'm just, I'm just going to die. If somebody, if somebody had to, if I had to jump out of a plane in order to save myself, I would just die on the plane. Somebody has somebody kill me, because uh, you, you will have to throw me out of the plane or kill me, because unconsciously, because it is not going to happen on my own. I'm paralyzed. It's just, it's just over. You had that moment where you just give yourself up. I'm going to die. I, I was in a, a wreck one time, and it was, I thought it was going to be worse than it was. And just as it was happening, you know how it starts to go in slow motion? And I just thought, I'm about to die. Uh, uh, one time, I was, I was struck indirectly by lightning. Um, it, it wasn't. It was an indirect strike. It, so it's not. I don't want to make it sound as dramatic as it was. But as the, as the beginning of the electricity started to flow through my body, I had the thought, this might be it. Uh, uh, I'm never going to taste that steak that we're trying to cook out here. And, and the thought process, like when we heard that thunder, we should have gone inside. So, 
these guys had already given themselves up. If this continues, we are going to die. And they go to Jesus who is sleeping in the bottom of the ship. They have, the, they have a, a small under, under deck. I don't know what it's called. I'm going to call it an under deck. <laughs> that, that is, that is, that is a small place beneath the deck where you could go down if you weren't actively uh, fishing. He was down there sleeping. Think of how hard. I, I'm a hard sleeper. I'm a hard sleeper. I slept through Hurricane Hugo. I was 10, 11, 12 years old. I slept through Hurricane Hugo. But this ship is rocking, going crazy back and forth. The waves are coming over the side. There's probably water sleeping, seeping down into the bottom where he is. And he's just snoozing. How crazy is that? And they come to him. And you imagine how angry they must have been? His people that are, that are following him who... who Believe that some, in some way that he's sent from God, he's a prophet, he's, he, maybe he's the Messiah, like we're following him like he is, we hope he is. And so that you've seen him, but he's been healing people, he's been casting demons out of people, like crazy stuff has been going on. You've seen his authority, and he is down in the bottom of the ship, of the boat, sleeping. Think of how angry they must have been with him. In fact, that's the wording here, is that Mark is the only account of this story where, where it shows like their irritation with him. Teacher, do you not care, is what they're asking. Do you not care that we are perishing, that we are going to die? Don't you care? Don't you care? You saved everybody else, but don't you care for me? Don't you care for us? And he awoke. <laughs> I just picture him just like, he's just chill, man. He's sleeping below deck. He wakes up. They're yelling. They're screaming. There's water coming in. There's waves crashing. Things are crazy. They're getting ready to die. People get crazy and panicky when you're getting ready to die. You ever been on a plane when there's really bad turbulence? You'll hear some praying. You'll hear some, some guys squealing like girls. You'll hear all kinds of stuff going on when people lose their head. When they're, getting, when they're getting ready to die. And all it says is that he wakes up, he's been sleeping, and he says, all he says is, peace, be still. And here's the miracle. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So not only did the storm stop, According to the account here, the storm stopped. But have you ever like a, you ever been in the bathtub? I was a kid, and you're in the bathtub, and you try to make your own waves, and you like move back and forth like this, and you get the water sloshing back and forth. Or maybe you're carrying a big, a big tub of water, and you start sloshing, and you like, oh, oh you, you try to steady yourself. What's the water? Does the water stop right when you stop? The water keeps on sloshing, man. It makes it like when mom and dad say stop from sloshing in the, in the tub, you stop. But the water keeps on that sort of going over the side. You come in, you get in trouble, and you get, you know, whatever happens then. Uh, the water keeps on going. But it's according to this, the storm stopped immediately, which was amazing. But maybe that could be coincidence. I mean, it would be crazy coincidence. Maybe he says, peace, be still, and the wind stops blowing. All right, that's lucky. But then it also says the, it calmed at the same moment. From an, in an instant, they went from getting ready to die, waves up and down. See the perfect storm? I'm not saying it was like that, but uh, that, that storm, that, that, that just, because my second fear is drowning. So I, I don't like heights, and I don't like the, to be underwater. I mean, they, anyway, it, it's a scary situation they're in, and it stops. And then listen to what they say then. 
Well, he says to them, and he said to them, <laughs> which seems like a stupid question. It would be irritating to follow Jesus. I've told you guys that before. It would be irritating to follow Jesus because he's always zigging when you think he's going to zag. He's always saying something you don't expect him to say. You know why? Because exactly what I said before. When your will is going this way, his will is going this way, and it crosses here, and we, it's like we're not speaking the same language. They thought they just go to the other side of the lake or the other side of the sea to go preach to somebody else or take a break or get some dinner. Maybe there's a good seafood joint over there. I don't know what it is. They're going over the other side. But he had a greater purpose in mind on the cross. And he says what sounds like a silly question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? After all that you've seen, after all that you've heard, after all that you've been around me, you've seen what I've done, you've seen the authority that I came with, are you, why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? And their response is, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another. So they went from fear to fear. They're afraid they're going to die. They're afraid of the storm. They're afraid of the sea. They're afraid that it's all she wrote. Then they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? See, before Jesus comes, almost all of our actions are motivated by either fear or pride. When, when you're growing up and your parents tell you, hey, stop doing this and start doing this, but what does it usually entail? It's usually entailed, if you don't do this, I'm going to beat you senseless, or, or, I'm going to, or you're going to have to, you're, you're going to, I'm not, I'm not advocating, but I, I'm going to, or you're going to have, you can't watch TV, or you have to go to your room, or you have time out, or whatever. There's a fear that something's going to happen if I don't do this. Or when you start to get a little bit older, they say, hey, don't do that. Losers do that, right? I mean, uh, really poor people do that. Don't act like that. Poor people do that. Don't act like this. Uneducated people act like this. Don't act like this. Your friends are going to make fun of you. And, and everything that we do is either motivated by fear or pride. I'm afraid of the repercussions that are going to come. Or some, somebody's working on my pride, say, don't do that. You want to think good of yourself. But Jesus is going after both of those motivations and leading the disciples, See, when he told them, let's go across to the other side, he had a plan in mind. They thought they were doing really good because they were following Jesus, and everybody else is just coming around him for what they were getting in return. So in comparison, they looked great. But he takes them out on their own turf, out in the middle of the sea. The storm comes up. God-ordained storm, by the way. The storm comes up and brings them to the point on their own turf, on their own deal, in their own boats. We are going to die. We are out of control. He's going after their motivations. What is motivating why you're following me? Are you following me because of something you get out of return? Are you following me because of, because of what you're going to get from me? Are you following me just because of who I am? Jesus is our loving teacher and Lord, and he's going to go after the false motivations that motivate us in our hearts. The first thing that we see in this section that we just covered is we see the untamable power of the storm that causes fear. They were out in the middle of the, of the sea, the storm comes up, and it, it wrecks. They know 
This is our deal. We've been out here before, but this one is the mother. It's going to take us. We're going to die right here today. They're thrown out of their comfort zone. It's an untamable power that's surrounding them and going to overcome them. And you and I, no matter how much you and I think we have it together, situations arise and will arise where it suddenly seems to be out of control for you. You get that call from the doctor. Not the good call. You know, when the doctor calls you, not the nurse. Or your spouse, you think everything's hunky-dunky, suddenly drops a load on you. They tell you, I don't love you anymore. I'm seeing somebody else. I don't want no part of this. You get one of those heart-wrenching, I mean, we all fear that call from, the, from a policeman on the scene. Something's not as it seems. We get that call and something is out of control. There's an untamable storm around us. At that point, how do you respond? How do you respond? It could be a small situation that I can't, that the money's not matching. I can't, I can pay these bills, but I can't pay this one this month. Or it could be that giant issue. Something is out of control. I can't reach it. What happens? You feel that panic that starts to come in you that you, you can't hear anything else. Like you, you start to respond out of frustration and fear and anxiety. You think we're going to go down. You're in an untamable situation, an untamable storm. The second thing we see in this passage is the untamable power of Jesus that also causes fear. You know what they were more afraid of in the storm? Jesus after the storm. Because before the storm, I can understand the wind and the waves. I can understand the storm. I can understand the wreck. I can understand cancer. I can understand a spouse. But coming into face-to-face with the untamable power of God absolutely wrecks us and makes us uncomfortable because we know that he's in control and he's not doing what I want him to do and so that makes me fearful and it makes me angry and it makes me frustrated with him because he's not moving the way I want him to move at the time I want him to move. I come down and he's sleeping. He's not paying attention to what's going on. I come down to him. He's sleeping underneath the deck. I'm frustrated. The storm has infinite power. We can't control that. But Jesus has infinitely more power. And that wrecks us. Because if he's in control of the storm, why is he allowing it to go on? Why did he allow this person to cheat on me? Why did he allow this to happen? Why did he allow that wreck to happen? Why did he allow that call to come? Why did he allow this? How do I allow that? I thought this was going to be the one. why? And I get frustrated and angry. And that is what Christ is after. In taking us across the sea and through the storm. He's after us. He's after us getting frustrated that we can't control the storm nor can we control him. And so we're left to see that I don't really trust him. That's why he says, why do you have so little faith? Because the faith didn't rely upon whether the storm was raging or not. 
Their faith was supposed to rest on the fact that Jesus was in the boat with them. If Jesus is in the boat, that should be enough. It is enough. But it doesn't feel like enough, does it? When you think you're going to die and the waves are coming over the side. If you're at the mercy of the storm, it's unmanageable power. But the difference between the storm and Jesus is that Jesus has a will and Jesus loves you. The storm that comes isn't happenstance. It's controlled by him and it's controlled by the one who loves you and wants the best for you. Just when I tell Landon it's time to go to sleep, I know he needs to sleep. When I tell Landon don't stand up on that chair, I know it's because he will, that boy will fall and he will break something. Maybe the floor, but something is going to break. But it doesn't feel like that at the time. Are you paralyzed by the infinite power of the storm? Have you ever felt that paralyzing fear? I'll tell you about my fear of heights. Like, that's a paralyzing fear. I know it doesn't make any sense. I know I'm absolutely safe. I know everything's cool, but you put me 40 feet above the ground, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to move. I'm going into my safe, happy place, hoping I can get out of there as fast as I can. I'm paralyzed by fear. Fear has a way of doing that to us. It has a way of freezing us. Are you paralyzed by the infinite power of the storm? Or are you frustrated by the infinite power, the untamable power of Jesus? I can't get him to do what I want him to do when I want him to do it. And I'm frustrated. Are you paralyzed by the untamable power of the storm? Or are you frustrated by the untamable power of Jesus? The third thing we see is we see how the untamable power and ultimate love of Jesus should cause faith. The untamable power and ultimate love of Jesus should cause faith. See, this story sounds a lot like a story that's in the Old Testament. That the parallel between every commentary I read pulled out this, this parallel between the Mark's account of Jesus in the boat and a storm coming up and Jonah. You guys know the story of Jonah? Even if you didn't grow up in church, you might have some sort of idea of it. Might have come to a felt board near you. You had the felt board whale and you had the felt board Jesus, or felt board Jonah and like he went away from, from God and then he gets from the water and the, the whale and like had this thing that opened up and you stuck Jonah in the whale. And then he's in the whale three days, and the whale spits him out on land, and then he actually goes to Nineveh, where he's supposed to preach. And I think he preaches like an eight-word sermon. Eight-word sermon. You're like, Randy, (laughs) take notes. But he preaches an eight-word sermon, and the whole city experiences a revival. Whole city. So the way it happened is Jonah was running away from God. He gets on this boat. He's hiding underneath the deck. He is sleeping as well. The storm comes up. The fishermen, the sailors are freaking out. The sailors are freaking out. They're going to die. They're doing everything they can. They're throwing things overboard. They're trying to make the, the boat lighter. The, sort of the last ditch thing. They come down to Jonah and they're like, you pray to your God. We're praying to our God. You pray to your God. Ask that he would help us, that he would deliver us. And Jonah wakes up and he says, just like Jesus, he's been sleeping. He wakes up and he says, oh, this is happening because I'm here. 
what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to throw me overboard. The, the storms aren't going to stop till then because God is coming to get me. That's what the storm is. The storm is governed and managed by God. So whatever storm you are experiencing and going through or have gone through or getting ready to go to, because here's what I know about life. I'm only 36 years old. Some of you, that sounds old. I'm 36 years old. Here's what I have discovered. In life, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You are either in suffering, getting ready, coming out of suffering, or you're getting ready to go into suffering. You're in one of those places. You're either coming out of the storm, getting ready to go into a storm, or you're in the storm right now, but you are one of those places. None of us is immune. And he is managing and governing that storm. He's coming after your false motivations. The things that you're trusting in and following rather than him. And so Jonah, is, he wakes up. He says, he's coming after me. You're going to throw me overboard. They say, we don't want to do that. Finally, it gets so bad, they actually do it. They throw him overboard. And the wind stops. The waves stop. Everything stops. And Jonah, Jesus compared himself to Jonah in Matthew 12, 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so would the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus, we saw that video that we just keep running over and over and over again in the beginning of service, because most of us don't see it because we come in late, which is fine. Not, but most of us, we come in late. The video says there's a, there's a new and better Adam, there's a new and better this, that Jesus is the new and better Jonah, who in the middle of the storm, sleeping underneath the deck, he wakes up, and as Jonah was thrown overboard three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so Jesus would stretch out his hands, die, and be put in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights to pay the debt that you could not pay. Those fishermen on the deck uh, the sailors on the deck of Jonah's boat, they could not make the wind and waves stop. They needed somebody to be sacrificed in order to do it for them. And Jesus, who's the one below deck with these disciples, is the one who would offer himself up for their sake, to pay the penalty they could not pay. Are you frustrated by the untamable power of Jesus? Are you paralyzed with the infinite power of the storm? Or are you, do you have faith in the untamable power and ultimate love of Jesus who gave his life for you and for me? Think about the difference in the way the disciples responded to this, from this storm to the things they would face in the future after Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose again. And they saw that. And they tasted how he had paid the penalty that he could not pay in exchange for them. Think about the difference. All of them that we know of, except John, died a martyr's death. Peter, they were going to crucify him, and the one that, that, that said, I don't even know who he is, who denied the Lord in his time of need, in, the, in his time, when the chips were down, after Christ had gave his life for him and he was convinced of the untamable power and the unfathomable, infinite love that Jesus, his Savior, had for him, he said, I'm not worthy to even die the way my Lord did. Turn me upside down. Something had changed. A confidence and a faith had erupted in the apostles that was not there when they were 
frustrated and fearful in the boat with Jesus when he's sleeping down beneath because they saw the combination. The combination of the eclipse of the unfathomable, untamable, unimaginable, infinite power of Jesus Christ, the one who calmed the sea. And they saw that intersect with the infinite, unfathomable, untamable love of their Savior on the cross, married together. Because of that, they were able to say, It's enough. Do what you want to me. The storm rages. Tough times come. I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be frustrated. But yet, it's okay because he's in the boat with me. The motivation is not fear any longer. It's not pride anymore. It's a quiet confidence. A quiet, restful confidence in the power and love of Jesus Christ for me. That's why Jesus was resting beneath. He wasn't play acting. He was sleeping underneath the deck in a quiet, restful confidence that his father was in control and had it all together. And when that marries for us, when we become convinced of Jesus' ultimate and unfathomable power and his ultimate and untamable love, then we can face the storms of life with faith and a quiet, restful confidence. I ask you these questions, we'll be done. How would your life look different if you were convinced of the ultimate and untamable power? in love of Jesus. How would your life look different? If you were convinced not only that like, I could get something out of him, but that he loves me and he's all powerful, how would your life look different? How would that change the way that you maybe respond to what, how other people think about you or your circumstances that seem unmanageable and overpowering? And the second question is for us together as a people. How would our families, our workplaces, and our community look different if we were to no longer be motivated by fear and pride? But instead we are motivated by a restful, purposeful confidence in the infinite and untamable power and love of Jesus. How would our families, workplaces, and community look different if we were no longer motivated by fear and pride, but rather we're motivated by a restful, purposeful confidence in the infinite and untamable power and love of Jesus. So how do we respond this morning? We respond in repentance. As you think about, and we all have it, no matter how much you think you have your life together, we all have places in our life where we're motivated by fear and pride rather than quiet confidence in the love and power of Jesus Christ. Where we don't really believe, we don't really believe that it's enough to have him with us. We want him to do something for us. We get frustrated. And our response is as the, the band's going to come, they're going to play, as we get, prepare our hearts for a communion together, our response is to respond in repentance. To ask, ask Jesus Christ, grant me repentance that I would turn away from putting faith and trust in what you can do for me and rather than in your person. 
to repent of how my life has been motivated. I mean, you can do the right things for the wrong reasons. How's your life been motivated by fear and pride rather than a restful confidence and a power and person and love of Jesus Christ? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.